I think the thing that I really realised in that move is that it felt really stressful initially and quite difficult. And I missed my home a lot and I missed having my community around me and my things around me. It was missing the kind of material stuff as well, I guess. But how I was doing all of that with the resources to be able to afford to pay for somewhere for an interim to stay and have family support that offered me a place to stay. There are elements to it that I found difficult and stressful, but also I've been very lucky and privileged to be able to do. There was never a kind of real risk of not having somewhere to live. And I suppose there are likely to have been lots of people in situations where it didn't feel possible where you didn't have a secure or safe environment to live in and you either weren't able to move or had to move and didn't have those resources to be able to move somewhere. Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, MODA, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Anna Baeza, and I'll be hosting the second season to explore the multiple stories around home in the current COVID crisis. This time, we're recording in less favourable conditions from our homes, so please bear with us if the sound isn't always of studio quality. And in this season, I'll be talking with historians, anthropologists, activists and practitioners to reflect on the many changes brought about this pandemic on our homes. As always, we draw inspiration from our collections to rethink the past through the lens of the present. In the season of That Feels Like Home, we've been discussing different aspects of the experience of living in and being at home, from the sounds of home to the question of who does the washing up. In this episode, we're taking a broader view to look at the more fundamental question of the right to a place to live. Over decades, market-centric reforms have had a huge impact on housing in the UK and beyond, and so too on people's ability to make a home. Policies including the right to buy, along with the gradual disinvestment in affordable housing and the growth of large-scale private investment, are just some of the factors that have contributed to making housing a more liquid commodity. While this state of housing crisis is a new, COVID-19 has amplified its effects, with many struggling to pay their rents and make ends meet. It's also put into relief more so the ways in which housing provision and racism intersect. Black and brown people experience higher rates of homelessness and overcrowding. So we're going to be talking about the changing context of housing, reform, activisms and futures, bearing in mind the COVID situation in the UK and beyond. And with us to discuss this is David Madden, sociology professor. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. David is Associate Professor in Sociology and Co-Director of the Cities Programme and the London School of Economics. He works on urban studies, political sociology and social theory. His research interests include housing, public space, urban restructuring and critical urban theory. He has conducted qualitative, ethnographic and archival research in New York City and London. He's co-authored together with Peter Mercuse of In Defense of Housing, The Politics of Crisis, published by Verso in 2016. His writing has appeared in leading urban sociology journals, as well as The Guardian, The Washington Post and Jacobin. So there's a lot of things to discuss here today, David, and it's not going to be possible to unpack all of it. But I'd like to start with asking you about your book in defense of housing, because at the very start, you draw this distinction between housing as a lived social space, what we might call home, and housing as an instrument for profit making. So we might think of real estate. Can you start by explaining this and say more about how in the book you're reposing the housing question? Well, in the book, we wanted to try to develop a perspective from which we can understand the contemporary housing problem as a political and economic problem. I mean, there, there are lots of different ways to understand the housing problem. And I mean, it, an interesting thing about our current era is that this is not one of those problems that its very existence is contested. I mean, everyone agrees that there is a housing problem. And it's sort of undeniable. So the, the sort of challenge is how to pose it in a politically useful way. And as a social scientist, how to pose it in a way that is analytically useful. So Peter and I looked to critical theory and critical housing studies specifically to get at this distinction between housing as home or the use value of housing and housing as real estate or the exchange value of housing. So you see how this sort of comes from sort of classic critical theory language about the distinction between use value and exchange value. And 
we think this captures a lot about the present moment when the different ways in which housing is a commodity are really undercutting a lot of the ways in which people use housing. And I think you can see this in a lot of ways. You can see this in the sort of broad shape of the housing system where what gets built, where it gets built, for whom, all of these things are shaped by economic considerations, shaped by the real estate industry. And uh, you can see this in terms of the residential experience as well. And just the experience of being a renter and also trying to be an owner-occupant is uh, is incredibly brutal these days. I mean, rents are much higher. People trying to buy housing are competing with all sorts of global real estate capitalists. And, uh, you know, you can see this on smaller scales as well. I mean, in terms of the extent to which people can take certain things for granted. I mean, a lot of people talk about precarity in housing, the sense that housing is unstable, that it is uh, not a sort of secure place for people. And this is also a consequence of the relative importance of housing as a commodity. So the sort of real estate dimension of housing, as opposed to the use value of housing, as opposed to housing as home. So in our book, we're in part, we're detailing this history of the commodification of housing, this long process of turning housing into a commodity, and also looking at the people who have struggled against that. So, I mean, this idea of indefensive housing, we're not trying to defend the housing system as it currently exists, because a lot of it is indefensible. We're trying to defend the idea of housing as a social space, as a lived space. And we're also trying to describe the social movements and the activists over generations who themselves have acted in defense of housing as lived social space. So I think that this contrast between home on the one hand and, and real estate on the other captures this sort of dynamic and conflictual relationship that we think can really help us grasp our current housing problem. Thanks, David. And I think that fleshes out some of the many things that I want to ask you about and that I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking about at length in the course of the podcast. But I also noticed that you've been referring to commodification, to housing problem, but the word crisis has been absent in, in, in anything that you've said. And I know this is something that you actually pick up in the book as well, is, is this idea of crisis, which everyone is talking about, the housing crisis. But you warn that this could imply that the current housing situation is abnormal. But in actuality, as you say in the book, for working class people in poor communities, housing crisis has been the norm. So could you expand a bit on that and also maybe thinking about the current context of COVID in which this word crisis has also been bandied about a lot? Yeah, I mean, I'm not someone who shies away from using the word crisis. And I've been accused even of overusing it in many different contexts. But in the book, we are we do sound a note of caution about this concept of crisis. And partly we're thinking about an argument that Engels makes in the housing question, where he says that, and this is a sort of classic, the, the classic statement on radical housing thought. And he's talking about the discourse of crisis in the 19th century when he's writing. And he's saying this idea of crisis is a bit misleading because for oppressed classes throughout history, crisis has been the norm. And to say that there's something exceptional about the housing crisis then was to sort of miss this point that crisis is not a sort of historical period. It's a process. It is something that is uneven, that unfolds unevenly and unequally and impacts different groups in different ways. And for some people, the, the historical norm is to be living in crisis and to be struggling with crisis just as a sort of baseline. I mean, so that is one of the reasons why we think it's important to be a bit cautious with this idea of crisis. Another reason is that, as I said, everyone's talking about housing crisis, but it means really different things for different people. So you can hear David Cameron or Boris Johnson. I mean, there's yeah. a whole sort of series of Tory responses to the housing crisis. And they really do use this idea of crisis to sort of invoke this sort of temporary breakdown of a system that is otherwise working perfectly. And this mm -hmm. idea that, you know, we just need to sort of fix the market mechanisms and the crisis will ease. And I think it's somewhat dangerous to think that the crisis, I mean, first the idea that there's only one crisis, but I think that the crisis is a temporary problem and that we just need to return to the status quo ante. I mean, it's precisely the status quo that is the crisis, that is the problem. Ultimately, we do use the term and continue to use it. And I think, you know, it's useful in a lot of ways as well. One of the things we say in the book is that it really captures the connection between the sort of broad political economic changes that 
have transformed the housing system and transformed the residential experience for many people and people's everyday lives. Everyone is, is sort of familiar with this idea of a crisis as something that they're living and that they're struggling with. And I mean, I think one of the useful things of critical housing studies is to get people to connect many of the crises that they're living through, mental health crises, employment crises, general crises of health and well-being, to connect these broader changes in the housing system. So I think the concept of crisis can, can sort of snap that relationship into a priority for people. And I mean, you know, if you add the pandemic on top of it, you really do see this sort of collision of a health crisis and a housing crisis. So I mean, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently is sort of intersecting crises and how they shape each other and, and all the consequences of, of multiple crises. I mean, there's crises of social reproduction. There's crises of sort of planetary existence. We live in a time of multiple intersecting crises. And as critical social scientists and as politically engaged people, we need to figure out how to work with this and try to grapple with it and transform it. The pandemic, it's also important to be critical of this idea of crisis uh, with regards to the pandemic, because it's not something that is only a result of COVID. I mean, there's long-standing health inequalities and pre-existing conditions that are really shaping the social life of this illness. And it's really important to, to bear that in mind. But yeah, I mean, we're seeing right now what happens when a housing crisis meets a health crisis, and it's not pretty. I mean, the housing system is really the front line where a lot of this is playing out. You know, there's a sort of longstanding line in housing and health research that says that housing is health. And we can clearly see that housing is absolutely health, is absolutely a matter of life and death right now. Yes, I mean, I think the connection between health and housing has become absolutely clear over this period. And in your book, you make the point that we need to think of housing in relation to other forms of oppression, which I think is related to what we're just talking about now. So not as something that exists in isolation. So with this, I wanted to ask you, what could a residential politics for emancipation look like? And one that brings together those different fights against different forms of oppression. Well, there is a... One radical tradition that says that housing is not a political site, and that actually is the tradition that Engels is located in. I mean, one of the interesting things about the housing question is that for all of Engels' incisive analysis, incisive critique of the housing reformers of his day, and his incisive analysis of the political economic role of housing, he says, ultimately, struggles surrounding housing are epiphenomenal. They're sort of secondary manifestations of real political struggles which happen in the workplace. And famously, he says, the housing problem cannot be solved under capitalism. That if you want to solve the housing problem or answer the housing question, then you need to end capitalism. Obviously, his argument makes a lot of sense within his broader framework, but you can see how this does, does relegate housing struggles to this sort of secondary circuit. And I think that's a mistake. I mean, I think First of all, that this is something that we can see in social reproduction theory and a lot of feminist political economy. Obviously, it is a big mistake to create some sort of sharp separation between domestic politics and domestic activity and domestic practices on the one hand, and so-called economic practices and struggles and activities on the other hand. I mean, they're intricately linked. And Engels was a subscriber to the separate spheres doctrine as a lot of political economic analysts were in his day. Right. But, um, you know, if you move past that, you see that there's nothing uneconomic or unpolitical economic about what happens within housing. And it's also that any sort of radical movement needs to grapple with the housing question in some way. I mean, housing is just so central to political, economic, cultural, social life. You can't have a program to transform society without transforming the housing system. And so, I mean, I think these are things that really do need to be thought together and that really do need to be integrated into, um, into some sort of analysis that doesn't see housing as a sort of separate specialist problem. I actually like to go back a bit in time in history and just think a bit about how at what point housing becomes an asset, the kind of financialized asset that we're talking about. Because, I mean, as I understand, we're, you know, you, we need to start thinking about the first enclosures in England when 
this wasn't just about fencing physical land, but also about the extinction of certain common uses of land which on which many depended for their livelihood. So this is the beginning of agrarian capitalism, but then there are these consequences that extend all the way to now, don't they? So could you explain a bit what happens in that historical period and then how does that link to what we see now, still today? Well, enclosure historically was a very long process I and mean, it unfolded over centuries in the early modern world. And I mean, it happens differently in different places and occurred differently in, in different periods. But the basic idea was the disembedding of land from the feudal social relations in which it had been embedded, in which it had been sort of contained. And housing was a part of that. So one of the arguments we make is that historically, housing was not a separate sector. It was really in its own way, a sort of outgrowth of the labor process. People's housing was distributed through the same processes that controlled and regulated labor and inhabited in the same way. And it was not something that was seen really as a source of profit accumulation on its own right. Um, and it was not something that was freely circulating as such. So, I mean, the process of enclosure ultimately leads to the commodification of land. And this is one of the sort of preconditions of the commodification of housing. But we trace this process over centuries. I mean, even in the 19th century, housing in sort of industrial capitalism, housing was not commodified to the same extent that it is now. And it was not seen as a, a major site for people to make their fortunes. I mean, certainly real estate development was a commercial practice and local elites shaped the housing market, controlled the housing market, but it was not a global commodity the way it is now. I mean, the current historical period is really unique in terms of the commodity character of capitalism. I mean, it, it's a process. I mean, some people use the idea of enclosure as, as a sort of overall metaphor to describe this process. Right. Um, but it's really a, a process of disembedding housing from social relations, disembedding housing from political regulation, and also sort of creating these economic circuits that allows housing to become a commodity and allows it to be a liquid commodity. Um, so just creating markets for residential debt, creating financial products that people can trade globally, new forms of ownership over housing. So it's, I mean, it is this sort of this long process, but it's something that's variable. You can see in the first half of the 20th century, there was a strong turn against the commodification of housing. So mm -hmm. the late 19th, early 20th century housing crisis spurred all sorts of radical movements, reformist movements, and ultimately demands for government regulation. And this sort of commodity character of housing was greatly restricted through things like rent control, through things like housing standards, maintenance standards, ultimately through the building of social housing, which was partially decommodified. You know, you have this turn against the commodification of housing. And it's really after World War II, housing is not a massively commodified sector. It's really in the 70s that things start changing and sort of accelerating after that uh, with the invention of real estate investment trusts, with the invention of new sorts of um, insecure tenancies uh, with the right to buy in this country that is a way to start deregulating the housing system in a piecemeal fashion. And it's really only in the last decade or the last decade and a half that housing really is this globally circulating commodity where people are investing in housing you know, through apps on their phone in distant cities uh, where people are participating in all sorts of new forms of like residential fintech and buying mortgages that have been cut up and repackaged, foreign direct investment in housing. These are all historically unique. Housing was not something that was really subject to global speculation in the same way before the contemporary period. So if you want to understand housing struggles now, you really need to understand this context. I mean, people are struggling against landlords that might live in other cities or other countries or might be corporate bodies that are located in tax shelters it's not the way housing struggles looked in the early 20th century when it was clear who the landlord was and, and how to target them. Yeah, which I think raises lots of questions. How does activism and housing struggle kind of position itself in relation to the new challenges of having this global financialized housing market? But I guess there's also an issue that I think you've raised in the past also that there are these global investors, but they aren't by any means the only culprits. There is all this political class that is also 
enabling this global financialized investments are happening in the first place, no? Yeah, I mean, the fact that housing is controlled by foreign investors, I think is often used quite misleadingly. I mean, the problem is that it's controlled by investors and not inhabitants, um, not that the investors are foreign. So, I mean, you can see here in the UK and in Canada, in Australia and many other countries, this tendency by political leaders to say, yeah, there, there's definitely a housing crisis, but it's kind of caused by foreigners. And to try to use xenophobia as a way to answer the political demands of housing movements. And yeah, I mean, I think this is missing the point. I mean, it doesn't matter if the investors are foreign or domestic. What matters is that housing is still commodified and hyper-commodified. I mean, it really doesn't matter who the investors are who own it. It's a matter of social relations and, and social structures. Globalization is a part of the story because it opens up new forms of investment to housing. It opens up you know, huge amounts of resources that are looking to be invested in the housing market. But it is uh, sort of the foreignness of foreign ownership is not in and of itself the problem. David, you've been talking about how that there's quite a complex and layered history to the enclosures that also has been variable um, over time and a long process up to now when we think about global and foreign investment into housing. So I'd like to ask you about the also the historical trajectories that activism has taken in response to these housing struggles, because I imagine that in the same way, housing activism is also manifold. It's changed over time, place. So maybe it can't be considered in a unitary way. So how would you characterize the different trajectories of housing activism, but maybe also some of the similarities across time and space? I know it's a big question, so maybe you can just address specific examples from your research. Well, Peter and I are, are mostly writing about housing activism in New York, but there's an interesting sort of shared history of housing activism in London. And a lot of things are true about both cities. And one thing that's true about both of them is that housing activism has always been cosmopolitan. It's always been internationalist in its own way, always been something that has grown from immigrant communities, working class immigrant communities. I mean, housing activism in London would be nothing without Jewish radical movements, Irish radical movements, Bengali radical movements, Afro-Caribbean radical movements. You can trace the history of housing activism by looking at the history of working class migration to this city and to New York as well. And I, I think this is a quite a notable part of housing history. I mean, the first in, in New York State, the first housing movements were connected to Irish republicanism and people who had been involved in anti-colonial struggles in Ireland who migrated to New York, people who'd been involved in the land war and specifically struggles over tenure, so moved to New York and started the first housing movements. And I mean, in this early 20th century, it was led by Jewish radical movements. Many of the participants of these movements had experience with radical politics in Europe before migrating to New York, as well as Black radical politics and connected especially to the uh, the interwar civil rights movement in New York. So I mean, there's, there's always been this cosmopolitan atmosphere that's shaped housing activism. And it has always been something that has struggled in the name of inhabiting housing against those who try to use housing for other purposes. So I think this is something that we can say transhistorically about housing activism. It has always struggled to assert the rights of the occupants of housing, the rights mm -hmm. of the people who inhabit housing, the rights of people who use housing as social space, and has struggled against landlords, has struggled against the state. And especially the way that the state has allowed landlord, various exploitative uh, landlord practices to continue, sometimes have struggled against other inhabitants of the city who have made communal life difficult or impossible. Uh, but housing activism is all about trying to protect housing as, a, as something that can be inhabited and something that can be lived in. And I mean, the nature of housing struggles changes with broader changes to the housing system. So in the early 20th century, there was a lot of, sort of struggling against local landlords. Um, and, you know, this was a period where it was possible to organize rent strikes that would 
do serious damage to the income of landlords. I mean, unlike now where, you know, some some people since since COVID have been trying to get rent reductions from companies that are owned by Blackstone or other sort of gigantic multinational investment firms. And that's a bit, you know, it's a very different uh, yeah. kind of struggle. But I mean, housing movements have also organized against sort of both with and against the state in a lot of ways. I'm thinking about movements located in council housing or in public housing that have in many ways been protesting what housing authorities have been doing and really see housing authorities as the enemy in a lot of ways. But they're also trying to improve social housing or public housing as a practice or as an institution and trying to protect it as you know, it's something that, that should exist and should be better. So, I mean, there are different targets. There are different tactics. You know, today, I think we are living in a golden age of housing movements in a lot of ways. There is just a huge amount of organizing in so many cities across the world. A lot of them are hearkening back to older tactics or older rhetorics. So there's been a real revival of the idea of a tenant union which is an old idea in housing activism, um, and that's coming back. You know, but movements are organizing against the housing system as it currently exists, so trying to find ways through alliance building and global mobilizations, trying to find ways to get some sort of leverage over global landlords and global real estate capital, and trying to get states that are very closely aligned with real estate capital to respond to them. You're listening to That Feels Like Home. I'm Anna Baithan. In this episode, I'm talking to David Madden about housing struggles and the right to a home. Now we're going to talk about affecting change, what kinds of change, and housing movements. Okay, I wanted to pick up on something you said, David, because you, you were talking about something that is transhistorical in common to these different activist groups, which is that assertion of the right to occupancy as a social space. And and I think because we've been talking about people's houses or maybe we can say homes, but this idea of social space suggests something broader. And it just reminded me of this idea of the right to the city which you can explain a lot better than me, but links to the French theorist Henri Lefebvre. And I guess the way in which we think that we're not just living in houses, we're living in in broader networks, we're part of a social fabric, which I think is what you were hinting at earlier. So I wonder if you could sort of expand a bit on what this idea of the right to the city means. It's not a legal thing, is it? It's more of an ethical or political sense that's being invoked by that expression. Yeah, Lefebvre uses the idea of the right to the city in a very broad way. So it's certainly not a legalistic right. And it's not even really a sort of juridical term. It should not be understood as housing rights in a sort of strict legal sense. I think he means it more as a set of claims that people make about a place and to a place, as well as a sort of political subjectivity from which they make it. So he's saying that a lot of struggles... So he was writing about the right to the city in the late 60s. He has a lot of vices as a writer, actually, but he has a lot of virtues as well. And one of his virtues <laughs> is being prophetic and sort of writing in a sort of prophetic vein. And so when he's talking about the right to the city, he's sort of prophesizing. He's, and he's saying, you know, the, the sort of struggles, the struggles of today and especially the struggles in the future are increasingly going to be struggles for a place within urban society, a place within an urban world. And he means people will be struggling for social space. So, and this is social space is another Lefebvrean category. Uh, but you know, people will be struggling to be able to shape their own space for community space, fighting to not be marginalized within vastly growing and transforming urban regions, and struggling to become agents of of urbanization. So, struggling to become people who are shaping the city to meet human needs and to meet social needs as opposed to being people who are producing value in an urban space that they don't control and that are that's owned by other people who are exploiting them. So it's a it's a sort of complicated political narrative, but it invokes this idea of the movements that are struggling for a place in an urban world. And one of the interesting things about it is that it sort of bounces back and forth between academic and activist usages. And I mean, as much as it's most commonly associated with uh, Lefebvre, it's also something that was circulating in Paris in the late 60s when he's writing and that sort of circulates through movements 
And you really do see social movements asserting something like a right to the city. They say, you know, if you go to housing protests, you really do see people saying, we have a, a claim to this place and we're not going to be pushed out. Our community is not going to be erased as workers in the city, as working class communities, as inhabitants. I mean, that, that gets this idea of the sort of subjectivity connected to the right to the city, that it's not a claim based upon citizenship. It's not a claim based on position in the social hierarchy. It is a claim as a city dweller to a place in the world and to uh, certain forms of, of right and power. So you absolutely can see all the time social movements, and not only housing movements, social movements more broadly, and move, movements for health, protests around public space, transportation. I mean, a lot of urban movements speaking in this register that we can call the right to the city. In the context of the grassroots and activist housing movements that you're talking about, I'd just like to ask you about a particular one that's ongoing at the moment and that also uses this word union, the London Renters Union based in London that instigated the can't pay, won't pay campaign. And about 3,000 people have already joined this campaign, which demands suspending rent for the duration of the COVID crisis, the cancellation of all rent debts, permanent ban on evictions, rent controls, and also measures to tackle racism in housing. So I wonder, just as a very contemporary example of mobilizing, you've mentioned there's a lot that's going on elsewhere, but if you you know, have something to, to comment on, on how London Renters Union, in the context of other mobilizations, are proceeding with this campaign. Well, this is a really important campaign because a lot of the harm that's being caused by the pandemic is connected to the existence of rent as an institution. And a lot of the economic as well as the medical and corporeal suffering that is happening and is going to happen in the future is tied to the fact that people still have to pay their rent. I mean, in many places, there has been a temporary moratorium on evictions. Some people have been able to negotiate temporary rent reductions or some sort of temporary suspension of rent. But the fact of the matter is that even while a lot of people have been unable to work, they still have to pay rent. And this is putting people in a really difficult situation. And I mean, it's, it is actually shocking, if not surprising, but still shocking that nothing has been done to just try to put real estate capitalism on hold during this global pandemic. And, you know, people who really are not able to work still have to pay the rent every month or, you know, after a certain period, we'll have to start paying again or pay back rent. It is a real crisis. I mean, I think these campaigns, in many ways, they are emergency responses to an emergency, but they're also helping us understand that a lot of the, the harmful consequences of this pandemic are due to socioeconomic institutions and political economic institutions like rent, um, and not just to the coronavirus. Yes, and I guess if we think also about the way in which this intersects with other systemic institutionalized inequalities, if we think of racism and how that also translates into the housing system in terms of unequal levels of access to affordable housing, overcrowding, I mean, that is also quite another big issue, isn't it? So I don't know if there's something that you want to say on that, also in, in how these housing struggles are being broadened and, and linked to other kinds of activism that might be, say, anti-racist activism. Yeah, I mean, partly it's the racialization of health inequalities. And, you know, a lot of movements are drawing attention to the ways in which black and brown communities have been just suffering massively and, and you know, experiencing a, this pandemic in completely different ways than privileged white communities. Another part of the intersecting crises that are shaping our world is um, the crisis of racialized state violence of police brutality, of racism in a broader sense. And I mean, I, you can see the, the global anti-racist protests that have emerged following the murder of George Floyd have, uh, I mean, they're not principally about housing, but a lot of them are sort of engaging with housing problems and, and housing struggles in a direct way. I mean, because I think it's, it is directly related to this question. I mean, a lot of police violence against racialized households. I mean, it's something that happens within housing and it, uh, and certainly within communities. And housing has always been one of the ways in which white supremacist housing structures have tried to 
control black communities. And a lot of uh, anti-racist and anti-colonial struggles have also been struggles against landlordism, and which has obviously long been a, a racialized economic institution. So it's part of the mix right now where you have this intensely racialized pandemic that is unfolding within the housing system. Also, this, I mean, in many ways, unprecedented global uprising against racism and against racialized capitalism that's also engaging with housing issues. You know, so there's, there's a lot there right now. This is a really interesting time for housing movements and housing activists. Partly the global leviathan of real estate capital is more powerful than ever before. And, you know, the stakes are incredibly high and there are absolutely huge amounts of residential injustice and suffering. But they are winning victories in some places. In cities like Berlin and Barcelona, housing movements are quite influential and have been able to push through uh, a number of different policies. And I mean, even in, in places like London, New York, Vancouver, I mean, housing movements have been winning small victories, in, in some cases, sort of medium-sized victories. And, and I think in a almost more important way, they're changing the ideological assumptions that underpin housing politics. And you can see the, just the whole sort of language and terminology and and uh, set of uh, sort of taken for granted assumptions around housing, they really are changing before our eyes. And I mean, I think the sort of sanctity of private property and the sort of respectability and unassailability of banks, mm-hmm. all of this really is being chipped away at. There's a lot of really healthy cynicism towards a lot of the sort of classic planks of housing ideology, no one believes in the American dream anymore. <laughs> to to, to yes. some idea of, uh, of sort of private housing ownership and, you know, owning a suburban house is the sort of key to wealth. Um, I mean, if you talk to young people today, no one thinks that that's a plausible way forward. And they, they sort of see it as, as the ideological fiction that it always was. And in the UK, there's a similar sort of consciousness. I mean, all the guff you hear about the housing ladder and, you know, the, the sort of centrality of private home ownership for British society, people see through that now. And they are asking why housing is so inaccessible, why housing is so expensive, why they need to be working three jobs and killing themselves uh, just to have an insecure place in this incredibly unequal housing hierarchy. And I think you know, we can trace this to the efforts of housing movements that have been you know, really bringing a lot of attention to these issues. I mean, day after day and year after year, highlighting the growth of precarity, the spread of all sorts of uh, shelter poverty and, and housing injustice. And um, obviously changing political opinions doesn't change anything on its own, but I think that this is creating something that can be built upon by the housing movements to come. And I think that this is a significant change that a lot of the sort of classic bits of housing ideology no longer have the power that they once did. We've been talking about change and it strikes me that there can be changes in policy that maintain the system and don't bring about real change. And then those reforms that are actually system changing. And this seems like a pretty important distinction in terms of how we intervene in housing politics. So I wonder what your thoughts are on this, David. Well, I think people are demanding real changes in the housing system. So, I mean, this, this is a, obviously a sort of long debate in critical theory and, and critical politics about reformism and, and social change that Peter and I are engaging with uh, towards the, the end of the book. But I think this is, this is an important thing to sort of see in housing politics and housing policy, um, because I mean, if you look at the political leadership of London and of New York, where you have two mayors who their election campaigns really were in a lot of ways about housing reform and changing the housing system. And both Sadiq Khan and Bill de Blasio have been real disappointments to housing activists, Mm -hmm. purely as they've stuck to the level of reformist reforms and of, you know, tweaking things on the surface, making big announcements, but not really changing anything. But, you know, people want to see transformative reforms. 
They want to see proper changes. Things like actual rent control, actual building of residential alternatives like social housing and cooperative housing and other communal or, or partially decommodified tenures. They want to see things actually change. They don't want to see landlords and developers and, and real estate capitalists getting rich while everyone else is suffering. So I mean, I think understanding the difference between, you know, you can call them non-reformist or transformative reforms, but changes, proper changes to the housing system as opposed to superficial ones is really important. And, you know, for a long time, I think somehow superficial changes had sort of mollified people, but I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I don't think that the small changes to housing policy are really going to speak to the level of anger that people have about the housing crisis today. Yeah, and in that sense, I wanted to ask you, what do you see the role of the state, which has come up earlier in the conversation, and I think as something that might be seen as as the enemy, we can say, but also essential in some ways to providing some of the solutions. So I wonder how, I mean, this is quite a big question, but what do you see the role of the state in the current conjuncture in providing more large-scale systemic change? All housing movements, in a sense, are struggling with and against the state because yeah. say, I mean, the state is, uh, for better or worse, it's the only institution that can actually provide some sort of traction against real estate capital right now. And a lot of the things that housing reformers and uh, radicals want to see are changes in state policy. I think there's a tendency in some circles in housing politics to understand this question as a sort of zero-sum game, you know, do you want more state or less state in the housing system? But one of the things we try to argue in our book is that this is not a helpful way to see it. The question is, what does the state do? Not, mm -hmm. is the state involved in housing or not? I and mean, states have always been involved with housing. And, uh, and even this, you know, this sort of process of deregulation that made the hyper-commodification of housing possible has involved states at every step. The state hasn't subtracted itself from the housing system. It's just started acting in ways that facilitate the commodification of housing and, and the assetization and financialization of housing. So it's not a matter of, um, you know, should the state be involved in housing or not? It's, you know, what should the state do with regards to housing? And it can do a lot. It can build housing on itself. It can lend money to build housing. It can regulate housing in different ways. It can create all sorts of interfaces between social services and, and social welfare. And it can provide housing or provide a sort of place in the housing system for non-citizens or for undocumented uh, migrants or people who are uh, in many ways excluded from other political institutions. And that states you know, and I, I use the term the state as a shorthand for many different levels and layers and agencies of, uh, of the government. But um, states are deeply involved in housing. And it's not a matter of just trying to get more state involvement. It's really a matter of trying to get them to do specific things. So there's the question that you asked towards the end of the book. Um, David, uh, which is, is housing for all a hopelessly utopian goal? So I just wanted to ask if, if you could expand on that question and how you see the role of reimagining and that sort of utopian dimension of housing movements and housing struggles in the context that you've been describing. Peter and I asked that question because in a world where the threat of homelessness really does play an important role in our economy, it can seem like a utopian proposition, housing for all. I mean, it, it is the threat of homelessness that mm -hmm. keeps people working, that keeps people paying their bills. And I mean, an eviction moratorium or sort of ends to the to the power that some people have to make others homeless. I mean, if, if sort of made permanent and really carried through would require total political economic transformation, or at least transformation of the housing system. I mean, it is built on the idea that people can be dispossessed from their housing. So it can seem like some sort of utopian fantasy to suggest that everyone could have housing or that this would be a sort of fundamental aspect of social and political life. The thing is that there are many countries in the world, including the UK and including the US, that have officially committed themselves to housing for all. Mm. Um, this is not, in fact, a utopian idea yeah. because it, I mean, part of our basic sort of set of assumptions about what human rights are is that people do have a right to shelter. 
um, it's part of the International Declaration of Human Rights. It's part of many different international treaties. It's part of many national constitutions. And so one of the questions we're sort of struggling with here is how do you have, on the one hand, the sort of stated goal that everyone should have housing and many countries with an official right to housing, how do you have that coexisting with housing injustice, housing insecurity, homelessness? And so that's why we argue that a right to housing needs to be fleshed out and uh, sort of made substantial in a lot of different dimensions. It's something, and we say that the idea of a, a radical right to housing, it really needs to be the name of a movement to transform the housing system. So it's, I mean, sort of thinking with uh, Lefebvre's idea about claiming rights or making demands that sort of exceed the limits of formal legality. That's the sort of radical right to housing that we're saying is is necessary. So, I mean, it really is a sort of direction or a process more so than saying, you know, states merely need to declare a right to housing. I mean, which is not to say that legalistic rights to housing are not important. They certainly are. And they they certainly are, you know, a, a sort of route towards a more substantial and, and deeper right to housing. But, you know, we're, we're really thinking more about a sort of broad political direction and something that, that movements can demand and work towards. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just thinking of how a couple of months ago, the Minister of Housing, then uh, Luke Hall, announced that local authorities would provide temporary accommodation to house homeless people. And I wonder, in the context of your describing and the sort of the broad direction, do you think that announcement and the extent to which those measures have been actualized or not, do you think that can serve as a precedent for some more fundamental change that will be sustained into the future won't mean that they'll be going back to business as usual. Well, a lot of cities, I mean, sort of right after the pandemic started, a lot of cities did pass these measures that said, okay, any yeah. homeless person has a right to housing and we will house them. And they didn't reach a lot of people for various reasons. Yeah. But they did sort of establish an emergency right to housing in a lot of ways. I and mean, similarly, a lot of cities passed eviction moratoriums that didn't stop landlords from trying to evict tenants, uh, which you know has continued despite it being temporarily against the rules. But I mean, you did see in many different cities, I mean, all of a sudden, these measures that were trying to establish some sort of emergency claim to housing. Um, and you know, it shows the lack of necessity for these things. I mean, the, the housing system doesn't have to be the way that it is. When you see cities just saying, okay, actually, we're just going to end homelessness and end evictions during this pandemic. I mean, they, they could have done that at any point. Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't think that there's going to be some kind of post-COVID socialism sort of coming from these things. Uh, you know, I think a lot of cities are already, you know, sort of recreating the conditions for widespread evictions, widespread homelessness, widespread shelter poverty. But they do show that it is not that hard this is something that really could happen. The blockages to uh, a better housing system are political. They're not practical. It's, it's not a matter of you know trying to solve an unsolvable problem. It is a matter of struggling against political interests and economic interests. Yeah. So on that note of the shifting of that political will, I just wanted to ask you a final question about the future of housing and what transformations do you hope for and in your view, how could these be achieved? I don't think that it's a matter of sort of dreaming up exotic solutions to the housing problem. You sort of know what the solution will be, which would be decommodifying housing, definancializing the systems that produce and distribute housing, building social alternatives and collective alternatives. You know, we, we have sort of all the pieces in place already. I mean, there there are models in terms of yeah. Public housing, social housing, community land trusts, cooperatives. We don't need to just dream up an alternative world of housing. I mean, there are sort of fragments of it all over the place that, you know, were created by radical movements of the past and and uh, experimental and, and and sort of reformist movements of the past. I mean, there are living examples that we can look to. So, you know, to some extent, it really isn't a sort of problem of the imagination. So, you know, we can sort of dream of an alternative world, but the tools are there. So, I don't know. I mean, I am uh, simultaneously optimistic and pessimistic about this. There really are sources of transformation. There really are 
movements and mobilizations across the world trying to change the housing system. But at the same time, the institutions that seek to maintain the system and profit off of it are also, and they're, they're also innovating and they're also mobilizing. You can sort of see with this pandemic all of the different forces that are trying to sort of seize this opportunity. I mean, on the one hand, companies like Blackstone and other global real estate companies are, um, you know, just waiting for all of these distressed assets to come on the market so you know, they can own more of the global housing stock. You know, and they, they really do see this as an opportunity to sort of expand their already large footprint. On the other hand, you, you can see a lot of housing movements trying to capitalize on this moment as well and trying to use the unprecedented focus that the pandemic has brought and just the ways in which the pandemic reveals the interconnections between different social and political problems. It is really powerful. And, you know, there has been this, you know, real moments of solidarity that people have had with one another. And, you know, this is something that has potential as well. So it is a contradictory moment. And it is a, uh, a moment when, you know, you can on a Monday read the news and fall into utter despair. And on Tuesday, see all sorts of signs that change might be on the horizon. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't have any uh, broad prediction for the future, but I know that the potential to deeply change the housing system is, is definitely there. Thank you very much, David, for joining in this discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Many thanks to David Madden from the London School of Economics for joining us in this conversation. In this episode, you also heard the voice of Carly Guest, who lent her experiences of living across multiple homes during lockdown. Thank you, Carly. I'm Anna Baeza, and this podcast is brought to you by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, Middlesex University. For more information about this episode, show notes and reading lists, please visit our website, moda.mdx.ac.uk. We'll be back again with more episodes touching on yet more aspects of home life and the everyday under COVID. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.